Well, the season we may be grateful for the air-conditioned banyan tree, because uh, it would be rather warm somewhere in the Himalayas on a night like this. <clears throat> the writing of our book, self Unfoldment, occurred about the middle of the years of my public activity, about 20 years ago, which was the climax of the 20 preceding years in which our various lines of thought developed and integrated. During that period, leading up to the publication of this book, I had a very wide contact with practically every type of religious teaching in the United States, Europe, and Asia. During that time also, I knew most of the personalities we, with whom we now associate uh, various movements, some continuing, others have ceased to exist. And as a result of the peculiarly tense situation uh, that was involved, uh, probably in part due to the years of depression, which had been most fatiguing on the public psychology, and perhaps due to the exceeding gullibility and good-heartedness of most persons who had little previous contact with the higher brackets of philosophical thinking, there was an unusual amount of confusion, misdirection, misinformation. Perhaps that was one of the real reasons that led me to write the book. But in any event, most of the points which I have made in this essay are based upon personal observations and experiences and the result of trying to help people put together lives that had broken apart under the pressures of unwise religious thinking. Now most of the extremely pernicious habits of that time are not as prevalent with us today, but we have developed some more bad habits, and in a good many cases the new habits are merely restatements of the old ones, like man's development of the vices of one generation or another, which look very much like the vices of all generations when we begin to analyze them. It became obvious at the very beginning of, the, of my career that one of our big problems was the peculiar inconsistency of human nature in the so-called truth seeker. We simply do not look at ourselves. We are so busy hoping for the best or fearing the worst that we seldom make a factual study of our own natures. We do not really estimate to what degree we are responsible for the troubles that move in upon us. We are also often inclined to overlook what we consider to be small or unimportant personal peculiarities. We sort of feel that if we really make a good try 
all our mistakes will be forgiven us. Unfortunately, however, the, one of our biggest mistakes is involved in the good try. Uh, our effort is not wise, not thoughtful, and not well considered. Now, this peculiar limitation has survived these years and is just about as prevalent as it ever was. And much of it hides under unclear motivation. There's been a great deal of debate even among the most scholarly minds as to whether it is humanly possible for an individual to be unselfish and accomplish anything. Some take it for granted that practically every instinct that we have is in some way based upon self-interest. That the person is incapable of completely separating his consciousness from his own peculiar needs and his own peculiar desires. I don't want to browbeat this point. It is not perhaps the most vital but I do think that the most obvious, the most commonplace examples of self-interest must be considered as contributing to a great many misfortunes, not only in our religious life, but in our general affairs. Where self-interest is permitted to become too dominant, certainly we get into trouble. Now, as I suggested, this self-interest is often well concealed under some kind of a broad policy. And I've worked a good deal in the last few years with individuals who would have sworn on the Bible that they were unselfish. Yet not at one moment in the entire contact that I had with them were they unselfish for an instant. They just did not know what selfishness meant when applied to their own conduct. Perhaps one way we can get at this is by means of a brief journey into Zen. Buddhism, recognizing the peculiar intensity of man's illusion as this related to his own conduct, attempted to cut the Gordian knot. It simply emphasized the importance of the individual completely renouncing the world and everything in it. Renouncing friends, family, renouncing home, wealth, uh, ambition, career, and taking the ground that either we served the universal to the exclusion of everything else, or we served the personal to the exclusion of the universal. In Ceylon, the monks of the Hinayana school still very largely follow this old idea that the individual, in order to free his consciousness, had to simply give up every involvement by which consciousness could be conditioned. That it was impossible for the individual to escape the tendency to exaggerate, misinterpret, misunderstand, or allow ulterior motives to enter into his conduct so long as he was in the world. Now, of course, Buddhism went even further than this. 
it realized that the person could take his worldliness out of the world and nurse it even in the wilderness. And to cope with this peculiar problem of the worldliness in man, nearly every religion has set up some kind of asceticism uh, to represent a major sacrifice of worldly attitude in the effort to attain a spiritual state. Now, this rather extreme measure has been attempted in the West. It has been attempted by Oriental teachers who came over here, some of them good and some of them bad, but sincere in their effort uh, to create an asceticism among Western people. I've watched this for years, and the results have always been bad. The actual fact seems to be that the average Westerner is not an ascetic. His attitudes have been conditioned too long. There is too deep a rooting in what we term the Western way of life, which is a way of personal involvement in every instant of physical living. Yet there should be and has to be some way in which Western man uh, without being expected to accomplish the impossible or have his equilibrium or even his sanity endangered by an asceticism which he cannot understand properly, there still must be some way for this person to grow, to build and develop a type of character that is suitable uh, to his personal unfoldment and to the laws of living under which he exists. I think the Neoplatonists uh, worked with this problem perhaps more successfully than any other Western group. They pointed out uh, that a rugged isolation was not necessary, that actually growth was a use of the commonplace that the individual could always use the conditions under which he lived and the situations in which he found himself as the basis for a proper and continuing unfoldment of his own nature. This, however, was not interesting in the times of Neoplatonism because it was not glamorous enough. Most individuals felt the need of a highly glamorized or highly dramatized spiritual code. It did not appear to them to be successful or satisfactory merely to learn to live better. They wanted some promise of mystery and magic. They wanted to believe that through some specific exercises they could either travel around the invisible universe or see things which average persons could not see and sometimes they succeeded in seeing things that nobody ever saw. It was uh, a rather mixed blessing and I have known a great many of these characters who, were, who claimed to be out of their bodies part of the time and were obviously out of their heads the rest of the time. <laughs> Yet they did not realize this. They were perfectly sincere in their belief that their own strange, wild way 
would accomplish the ends which they desired. I watched them through all these years of fantasy. I know they did not accomplish the end that they desired. But like most failures of this kind, they went down to the silence of the grave and no one ever really knew whether they succeeded or failed. But I watched them and I know that they failed. They undoubtedly gained certain rewards in terms of universal recognition of a good try, but they did not attain the ends which they sought. They simply did not have the basic values by which human beings develop under a pattern or in a situation. Therefore, it was, I, it was as I mentioned last week, my desire to prepare some kind of a study that was suitable for Western man. And in doing this, it became obvious that Western man had certain faculties which were useful, that he had his own problems which he also had to master, and that his way of growth was the integration of his own Western way and that this integration could be helped by an increased understanding of the spiritual foundations of all peoples, for we have all in every generation and in every area been confronted by somewhat similar problems of stress. Therefore, what are the problems that beset every human being in the common sense of the weaknesses of his nature, the inadequacies of his knowledge, the lack of organization of his attitudes, by which his life is daily plagued. And the correction of such errors or mistakes certainly constitutes a proper beginning for the development of a better life. All great systems have pointed out that so-called spiritual advancement is not supernormal. It is not something by which the individual is sort of set apart as a different kind of creature. So spiritual growth is simply the development of the natural resources of the individual. It is perfectly normal for the individual to grow. And we can only try to understand why this normal procedure does not operate as it should. A man does not grow because someone waves a magic wand over him, nor does he develop his spirituality in the face of others because he was predestined and foreordained. A growth in this world is the problem of gradually increasing control of the various elements which go to make up living. And we may say that the adjusted person is the one who has learned how to grow. And if his growth continues in a orderly and, and proper manner, he will ultimately attain the interior enlargement which he seeks. Thus, all growth must be by natural means, not by some strange supernaturalism. Growth is not a 
strange doctrine. It is the individual gradually putting himself in order. And he must do this on purpose. Now it does appear, and it is true, that some persons are born due to the development of their own nature, previous embodiments, or by the laws of karma operating in life, with what appears to be a better foundation than others. They seem to have better faculties, uh, perhaps a little less difficulty in bringing their lives into order. But this again is something which I think can be analyzed rather critically. Actually, a person who has better facilities or better personal integration nearly always is confronted with a larger problem. In other words, uh, as we grow, the challenge grows with us. And it is not really fair to say that it is any easier uh, for the better equipped person to win this fight than a person with fewer endowments. Because the victory is different in each case. Growth for each person is his own next step, not somebody else's next step. Furthermore, this next step has never been standardized. There is no way of saying getting up in front of a large group of persons or even a small group and saying this is the next step for all of you. The next step for each individual is the correction of the most glaring fault of the moment, whatever that may be. And this correction is actually best known to the person himself. And unless he has blocked his mentality, with some type of auto-hypnosis, he is able to guess pretty clearly what this next step for himself is most likely to be. But having discovered, perhaps, what the next step is, he may simply rest in bewilderment. We all know some things we should do better. We wonder why we don't. We try and in a short time the effort becomes too great for us. We really sincerely make some kind of an endeavor, but uh, we discover that our machinery for the control of ourselves is inadequate. We believe certain things, we want to do them, but we simply do not have the power with which to do them. And our Western way of life, because of its comparative lack of emphasis upon the development of the internal resources of the person, does not give us very much help. We graduate from school fairly well informed in mental processes, but we also graduate almost completely the servant or slave of these mental processes. Uh, we learn how to make a living, we learn how to barter and exchange, we learn simple rules through the application of which we fit into the peculiar period in which we live, but we do not generally possess any skill permitting us to make a change in ourselves. 
all through the years, it's pretty close, it is 40 years this year, this has been the point that I have observed most consistently, that the person does not know how to change himself. He knows how to discuss the change. He knows perhaps formulas that might work. He knows what he would like to be instead of what he is. But he remains to the bitter end what he is. And the good resolutions are like a certain plans for retirement, usually pushed ahead so far that the grave catches us first. The only answer to this process of changing self lies in what the ancients call disciplines. We know that we can, under certain inducements, achieve a certain kind of change. We know that the person learning to play the piano can gradually increase in skill until if he has some basic aptitude and a great deal of industry, he may become a proficient musician. He can train his hands. The artist can train his eye. The artist has to learn to discipline sight. The musicologist has to learn to discipline the receptivity of his own ears. The performing musician as to learn to discipline those parts of his personality which are involved in the presentation of his vocal or instrumental music. Individuals can achieve this discipline. Usually, however, if they achieve it at all, they achieve it only because of some one pressing resolution within themselves. This may be the instinct to be superior. It may be the desire to earn more money. It may be the instinct uh, for applause or fame. But this type of physical discipline is accomplished by practice, by dedication, and by continuity of effort. The individual who disciplines his physical faculties feels that he has achieved a great deal. And in large, he has. But when it comes to attempting to discipline his emotions or his mental characteristics, he finds himself still at a greater loss. To the average person, discipline, if it exists at all, is a genteel form of browbeating. The individual feels that his faults must simply be killed out, wiped out that he must nag himself into a state of grace. He doesn't succeed. He nags himself into a neurosis. He tries to impose discipline upon himself uh, by brute force alone. And this is quite common in religion, where an individual taking some obligation of a religious nature feels that it is his moral duty to abide by this resolution. If his courage and sincerity are sufficient, he will stick to his resolution, but it may cost him his life. He is still not understanding the basic idea of discipline. Discipline is not 
whipping yourself. Discipline is not gritting your teeth and going on with something uh, which is not according to your real desires, but is done from the sense of duty, responsibility, or obligation. So in the West we have very little honorable and proper self-discipline. Children are not taught discipline even as much now as they were 25 years ago. And the general tendency today is that the individual believes that his right to liberty implies that he will not be self-disciplined, that discipline is a form of slavery, that the disciplined person is simply one who is inhibited, frustrated, or restrained from doing those things which he most desires to do. As long as this attitude remains, we have no progress in philosophy. We have no hope or expectation of anything except this peculiar type of legality under which we live, in which we are a little afraid to break the law because of punishment, but have no honorable and sincere respect for the law in itself. Discipline uh, always suggests, therefore, some type of insight. The individual cannot become uh, capable of various advanced disciplines without an adequate background in the principles of religious philosophy. He cannot step from the life of the sinner into the hoped career of the saint uh, simply by conversion. He must have some understanding with which to operate. Censorship of his own action is not only a matter of strength, it is a matter of discretion. The person must wisely administer the various types of discipline which he imposes upon himself. For if it's all enthusiasm, he will certainly get into trouble. An enthusiasm of this nature burns out and after a period of comparatively unrewarded effort, the individual drops back into his own ways and his old ways because he sees no longer any inducement to be uncomfortable. Discipline thus means that the person must be able to evaluate not only his own conduct, but the conduct of others. He must sense the direction in which his own efforts should go, and he must strive very devoutly to keep balance at all times, and never permit himself to indulge in any excess of mental or emotional pressure. Uh, we have, for instance, a very common situation in which the person attempting to attain some type of spiritual improvement uh, becomes creed-bound, becomes set in some kind of a pattern. By degrees, the boundaries of this pattern become a slavery uh, that uh, can cause a great deal of harm. Uh, devotion to principles is wonderful but devotion to things not understood in themselves can lead to trouble. And today, many thousands of well-meaning persons who are seeking to grow for the glory of God 
have because of the restrictions which they have placed upon uh, creedal and sectarian considerations have placed themselves in a condition where it is impossible for them uh, to really experience the universality of anything. In other words, one moment the individual says, I want to grow, I want to be better, but obviously the thing I belong to is right and what everybody else belongs to is wrong. Or, very temperately and very nobly, what I believe is more right than anybody else's. And if these other people are right at all, it's just sort of, well, they're doing the best they can. We, uh, in other words, sort of damn them with, fall, with faint praise. We, we become intolerant even while we are practicing tolerance. We become creed-bound and sect-bound even while we are proclaiming the unity of life. And we become critical and condemnatory of others while we are devoutly addicted to the brotherhood of man. These things the person himself seldom sees. But others see it in him, and it's one of the reasons why he doesn't make more converts when he starts out trying to spread the glad tidings that he has received. So discipline is a very skillful problem. And under our present pressures, it is a little more important than ever before that we analyze the various procedures realizing that we must build the new upon what we have and not upon what we have not. That we have certain energies which we have developed, certain policies and practices that are familiar to us. These must contribute the basic material for our improvement. And uh, this is good in itself because it prevents us from making this unfortunate dichotomy in which we declare if one thing is right, everything else has to be wrong. Uh, to, uh, to get out of that emergency, a little Zen is very helpful. So in the, this book, I have tried to point out these basic issues on the ground that we must begin to grow where we are with the facilities and faculties that we now possess we must use the instruments which our time and our race has given us. And we must grow in a manner that does not endanger us or cause us to become fanatical or perhaps more seriously than this, victims of some type of abnormal psychical aberration. The great danger in all these exercises and processes as handed down to us from the past has been the danger of aberration. Uh, one of the great French transcendentalists, Eliphas Levy, said many years ago that the garden of Maya, or illusion, is filled with beautiful flowers, and around the stem of each flower is twined a poisonous serpent. It's a very interesting uh, symbolism. And delusion is the penalty of ulterior motive. Delusion is one of the inevitable byproducts 
of the individual who is trying to develop the superphysical use of sensory perceptions without having disciplined the ordinary use of them. The moment we move from the comparatively small area of the known into the vast and inconceivable area of the unknown, we fall into the most dangerous of all conditions, and that is the state of mystery. Not one person in 10,000 can live successfully in a mystery. This mystery, this darkness which seems to surround us, becomes a kind of reflector and calls out of our own natures and reflects back upon ourselves every abnormalcy that is within us. Thus, as in ancient times it is said we peopled the universe with demons, and looking into the sky looked as though into a mirror and frightened ourselves out of our wits by our own grimaces. The small child does this. The hole in the dark, the punishment of the dark closet, can work a great hardship upon a sensitive child today. But man trying to move out of the known into the unknown is stepping into the darkest closet of all. And he cannot make this step safely until he is master of himself. Up to that time, this step into the unknown is a step into chaos. And even further than this, it is not that the individual lands in a darkness which he cannot penetrate. He lands rather in a state of delusion in which he is constantly obsessed by things which are not so. And it is more tragic to believe that which is not so than to believe very little. So out of all unbalanced, unwisely attempted self-development, all efforts to grow spiritually without building an adequate foundation under growth, all such procedures lead to self-delusion. And this self-delusion is not always unpleasant in its beginnings. Usually self-delusion begins to reveal some of the basic aberrations with which psychology is now concerned. And many individuals are being saved from this self-delusion process, which afflicted so many 50 years ago, by the fact that man is beginning to estimate the nature of his own delusional powers and begins to realize how he can fool himself, which he did not know nearly so well 40 or 50 years ago. But actually, all of this delusional material breaks down into the more familiar psychotic situations, the messianic complex, the divinity complex, and uh, similar things. And uh, I have gone along watching and studying and working with many, many lives, uh, these, with these people uh, whose lives I have watched, who have gone through these delusional processes, usually beginning with something apparently lovely, beautiful, wonderful, messages that make things so sweet and fine and grand and noble, 
and then little by little you could see the sickness creeping in and this sickness ended in terror in fear in obsession in a gradual increasing doubt about everything a terrible mental and emotional sickness in which each new terror of the individual was reflected back to him again from the surface of this blazing mirror of illusion into which he was gazing and in the end what might have been a useful life lost the name of action this type of delusion again you cannot work with once an individual has had a vision regardless of whether it's any good or not nothing you can say to him is as important to him as the thing he believes he has seen no matter how you try to work with him or teach him he will never be able to give the same strength to your remark as he gives to this disembodied voice that he seems to hear so by degrees these vicious experiences take over destroy judgment destroy everything and end in tragedy the only protection against this type of condition is that man normally is preserved by nature from this type of situation it is only when he breaks through the guards unwisely that he destroys the protection which nature naturally bestows but once he becomes disoriented once he loses anchorage with facts once he is no longer able to estimate a fact from a falsehood then he floats away into a terrible dereliction a situation which too often cannot be cured in this life so to meet all of this type of situation we have tried to work out a practical program uh, to point up how the person can gradually get himself into a situation of consciousness in which he can make certain basic moves safely because the delusion always arises from this internal dishonesty now this dishonesty may not be intentional it may be ignorance but it is still wrong and the small child who drops the match into the keg of gunpowder does not prevent the explosion merely because it's a small child if we break these rules we are in trouble the only way that nature knows to keep us in line is to see that we cannot break law with impunity so we have to watch these laws and live them to the very best of our ability now in the uh, work of this evening I've put some markers here and there in the book to bring out some points which I'd like to make uh, some special um, uh, additional commentaries upon and part of the material I've already made into a general commentary which I've just given you in the third in the fourth chapter of the book under the general heading of placidity we begin to take up a series of attitudes that are valuable to us let us imagine for a moment that you are on 
uh, a boat that is on fire or are in an automobile which has gotten which has gotten out of control or in any desperate situation you then realize as perhaps never before that your only hope of survival is a tremendous orientation you have you you must keep control of yourself you have to use every faculty as acutely as possible to extricate yourself from this emergency. If you panic, you are lost. Now this uh, is the same in connection with the personal growth of the individual. Uh, security and progress depend upon not ever panicking. And uh, the panic may be a pleasant one or an unpleasant one. Uh, the individual who becomes over-enthusiastic is guilty of the same situation as the one who becomes over-fearful. Always uh, common sense, rationality, clear-sightedness, insight, these all function best if the individual keeps control of himself. So uh, the beginning of our search into this more abstract sphere, as we begin in chapter 4, is to emphasize the importance of the development of placidity in the temperament. Uh, if you have a certain placidity, if you are able more or less to accept, if you are able to observe and consider and reflect, with a degree of separateness so that it may be said that you can take a separate look at things. This essentially means that you can partake in many forms of knowledge without being obsessed or possessed by them. That you can take part in a discussion without being insulted or trying to insult someone else. That you listen to learn and not to criticize that you are perfectly able to sit quietly a whole evening and let somebody else do the talking instead of believing that it is your moral duty to interrupt. Placidity is this power to gently accept um, a situation without becoming emotionally or mentally involved and at the same time alert to all the facts involved. This means that whenever a judgment is demanded, that you can come to this judgment without prejudice, without pressure, that you will not speak hastily or thoughtlessly, nor will you try to dash in with a last-minute solution to a very basic and long-range problem. Now, placidity does not mean that you never under any condition become excited. But it is true that uh, for practical purposes, excitement or emotional stress and emotional outbursts are escapes that are useful only to the individual who has no better way of using the energy. Certainly, if you have a certain type of temperament and nothing else to do with it, you may get considerable relief from an occasional outburst of hysteria. It uh, psychologically is regarded as a kind of therapy. It lets off steam. 
But the real purpose of the steam is not to be let off that way. The real purpose of the steam is to drive the engine. And the individual who is not using his energies adequately and properly is the one who must have some kind of emotional outbursts to balance his own failure uh, to organize his resources. So poise does not mean not to do anything, but it means never to do anything by emergency or desperation. Many people live a lifetime of perpetual emergency. Every issue, every situation that arises has to be met with a full armament of emotional pressure. These people will never get very far in the development of disciplines because they are using too much obvious energy. They are not suited for the subtle application of principles. They just burst through things. They're like floods breaking through dams. They are not channeled energies. Placidity is a tremendous asset because it prevents us from these excesses. But placidity is not something you can simply say, on Monday I will sit quiet and twiddle my thumbs. You can't do this either. Placidity is not something that you can directly say, this I will be. Placidity arises from insight. Therefore, practically every degree of physical or mental or emotional control that you can exercise arises from your insight about fact or truth within yourself. Placidity, then, must arise from a disciplined philosophy of life. You must be placid for a reason, and you know exactly why. Your placidity must arise from the fact that you have outgrown hysteria, not that you have outlawed it. But all things being taken as equal in this problem of growth, the quiet, organized person accomplishes more, suffers less, wastes less than the person who has not this degree of self-control. Also, the placid person, because he does not have strong delusions, that he is attempting to force upon himself is not so likely to deceive himself in the various pursuits uh, of growth. The individual who wants too much too soon will always deceive himself. And in philosophy as in morality, blessed is the individual who desireth little because it is not necessarily true that he will receive little, but because his desire level is not high, because he is relaxed and comparatively placid, nature finds him the most plastic instrument for the achievement of her own purposes. And the conflict between self-purpose and universal purpose is less where the individual is quiet and accepting by nature. Someone will say, well, I'm just not that kind of a nature. That's all there is to it. Uh, when I don't like something, I want to hit somebody. Well, 
We can say this and we can keep on doing it. These are choices that the individual has the right to make. That is part of this inalienable right uh, stuff we read about. But if we make use of it in that way, we also have the inalienable necessity of abiding by the consequences. The individual who says that he is going to do it his way, regardless, must then, in good grace, accept the consequences. But this he seldom likes to do. He is the first to feel himself abused. He is the first to lose confidence in the universe. Not because he has ever given it a chance, but because it has failed to do or be what he expects it to accomplish. It's his own mistake. So this placidity involves poise. And poise is this ability to meet all shock and stress with a maximum of attentiveness and a minimum of wasted energy. If we could put the energy that is wasted by the average person to work in his life, he would live an additional 50 years in good health. We sometimes see small children who cannot be kept quiet, and we see that they are bubbling over and going all the time. And later in life, we look back and say, oh, if we only had their energy, if we only had the energy to use now that we wasted when we were six, how happy we would be. But our problem is not that we wasted all this energy at six. We are wasting it all the time. We like to believe that man has more energy as a young person than he does as an older person. I think this is largely an error. I do not believe that it is a real loss of energy unless there is actual sickness. I think the matter of fact is that the older person breaks up his energy resources into too many patterns. He has a hundred things to accomplish to the child's one. He has innumerable purposes. He has fears and responsibilities and obligations that the child does not share. Therefore, he is wasting more energy than the child. The child is only running all the time and shouting, which is really the least waste of energy. A good hard soak, a good half hour's temper fit, will waste more energy in an adult than 24 hours of running, yelling, and screaming will waste in a child. Because the more mental and emotional stress goes with the use of energy, the greater fatigue. So our lack of poise, our lack of order, and our lack of self-discipline simply results in the perpetual exhaustion of our energy resources. The Chinese learned that, and so did the old Koreans. And the legends of these old gentlemen in the Diamond Mountains of Korea who lived quietly to the age of 160, and then, like the wonderful one-horse shave, fall apart of no particular ailment. These persons simply are individuals who have allowed their natures to run their full course 
have gotten from the body all that it can give of support, it must ultimately be fatigued. But because of integration within themselves, have probably doubled the life expectancy of the undisciplined person. But the undisciplined person will say, if I had to live like those old gentlemen, I'd rather be dead. That is his answer. If he cannot have these wild moods, if he cannot do as he pleases, then there is no sense in being alive. And on this psychology, he rapidly joins his ancestors in forest lawn. But it is quite possible that these old gentlemen are really enjoying life more than he does, depending on what kind of activity makes you happy. If happiness is the result of adjustment with life, kindly relations with others, love of beauty and scholarship, and a gradual increasing sense of intimate association with the great mysteries of life around us, if these things make us happy, the old Korean scholars are a very happy lot. If, however, only congestion, stress, and strain, and the fulfillment of our personal private ambitions, if this, uh, these things alone make us happy, then we must pay the penalty because nature is not interested in our success on an economic level or on an industrial level. Nature is interested in only one thing, our success as human beings. And nature rewards us for that kind of success with the best rewards that she has. And these are health and happiness and contentment and freedom uh, from the stress and strain of fear and doubt and worry. Now another problem that lies very close to our American way of life is inconsistency. How rare it is to find a person whose words and actions are consistent, whose policies are consistent from day to day. Now consistency has become a bad word through misuse. By consistency we do not mean a dogged continued devotion to our own mistakes or the kind of consistency that arises out of the philosophy, if it was good enough for Father, it is good enough for me. This is not consistency, this is just narrow-mindedness. But consistency means the flowing of our own life without the jagged breaks which arise from total chemical disunity. A pattern in living, once set up, becomes not only physical but psychological. A person who takes certain attitudes, develops them, and creates patterns in his psyche, and then suddenly for some reason violates all these patterns, goes in a contrary direction, breaks down the whole structure that he has built up, puts himself at a terrible disadvantage. Inconsistency divides resources, reduces strength of purpose and causes the person finally to fall between two chairs. He cannot uh, unite his energies for any definite purpose. Consistency is logic in a certain reason, way of thinking. Logic is order. Consistency, therefore, is orderliness. 
It is the gradual reduction of life to its simplest, most practical, reasonable plan. It is escape from fashion, from fad. It is escape from the extravagances of conformity with foolishness. It is the individual quietly determining a course of reasonable policy, suitable to his means, suitable to his needs, and most inclined to free his life of unnecessary worries and responsibilities, and the acceptance of this pattern and the living of it. So in a sense, this becomes the simple life. Now, a simple life is not necessarily the life of Thoreau by the banks of Walden. The simple life is not a hut in the desert. The simple life is the individual living simply where he is. There is no great advantage in this idea that the simple life has to be an impoverished one. It is not what we have or do not have that determines these qualities. It is the use we make of what we have and the attitude we have toward it. And the person with a wrong attitude can get as, into as much trouble clinging to a nickel as another man can get into trouble with a wrong attitude in his effort to cling to ten million dollars. It is not the amount, it is the basic attitude. And simplicity simply means the direct living of life, clearing it of all unnecessary involvement and freeing the mind and heart continuously for essentials. And essentials in this situation being the rudiments and elements of immediate personal growth. I have known probably a hundred persons who have come to me and told me that they wish they had time for study, but they had this to take care of. They had that to take care of. One individual told me that they would like to take on the simple life. They'd love to have this kind of a gentle way of existence. They would certainly admire peace and, and quietude and freedom. They'd always wanted to be scholars, but they couldn't do anything about it because they had to spend 10 hours a day at the stock exchange.